First You Think is a not-for-profit ministry of the First Unitarian Church of Des Moines. Support us at ucdsm.org today. An author paints a beautiful scene. Mariah Mitchell is standing in the front parlor of her humble family home on the island of Nantucket on a biting winter Saturday in 1831. So just close your eyes, you're off the prairie, you're on the ocean. Beside her, a shiny brass telescope points out through the removed, removed window panes. She is too ablaze with excitement to feel the gusts of February freeze rushing in. A glass bowl fills with water, hangs overhead, dappling the room with rainbows. Through a piece of smoked glass, she lifts her eyes to the darkening noonday sky, ready to count the seconds of the eclipse. 21 minutes past noon, a metallic light begins to turn the houses, the hills, the harbor into a living daguerreotype. Someone across the narrow cobblestone street stops playing Beethoven mid-bar. A young whaler down in the bay leans on his harpoon to look up. The scene is from a book by Maria Popova published in 2021. It's a kind of collage biography of several 19th century scientists, writers, artists, many of them women, mostly Unitarians or Transcendentalists or Quakers. Popova goes on, against the deepening cobalt of the sky, the moon glides before the sun and carves a slowly slimming crescent. When it settles for a moment into a glowing ring, Mariah counts 117 seconds and feels like she is peering down the gun barrel of time, gold-rimmed and eerie. She is 12 years old. She is besotted with the splendor of the cosmos and the sturdy certitude of mathematics, an intellect undimmed by the limitations of her time and place. No woman can receive a formal education in higher mathematics or astronomy anywhere in the world. No woman in America can vote, nor will, in her lifetime. Night after night, year after year, Mariah Mitchell will point her steadfast instrument at the nocturne and sweep the skies with a quiet, systematic passion, searching for a new comment against the backdrop of familiar stars. So Maria Popova goes on, one autumn evening in her 29th year, she would slip out of her parents' dinner party to climb onto the roof and station herself at the telescope, surprising herself with a spontaneous gasp when she sees at half past 10 on the 1st of October, 1847, a new telescopic comet. What invigorated Mariah Mitchell that evening and would drive her the remaining decades of her life was the ecstasy of having personally chipped a small fragment of knowledge from the immense monolith of the unknown. That year, she became the first woman inducted into the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. She was the nation's first female professional astronomer, the first paid by the federal government to calculate navigation. She founded the Nantucket Athenaeum and established the astronomy department at Vassar College, where she told her students, quote, mingle the starlight with your lives and you won't be fretted by trifles, except 
nothing as granted beyond the first mathematical formulae, question everything else. She was all about letting light in. So my favorite part of this passage, other than the fact that a 12-year-old convinced her parents to take the glass out of their living room windows in New England in the winter, <laughs> my other favorite part is the phrase, quiet systematic passion, which I think might be part of what defines us as human, or at least defines us as alive and awake. Not just passion, all wild and wild, but intentional, systematic curiosity. And not just thoughtful intention, but passionate. So it's wild and unquenchable love of life and learning and possibility and geometry and mystery and wonder and what if a burning desire to let in more light. Last year, we moved from an old house that we'd lived in for more than 20 years. And in the kitchen there, there was a window with a broken sash cord. We never fixed it. We were going to, we never did, now we've sold it, so whatever. It wouldn't stay open by itself in the summertime. So we would always be propping it open with a block or a book or a fan or a saucepan or a roll of paper towels that would like squish down or a wooden spoon and it would always slam on us. And I feel sometimes that this is what my own mind is like and sometimes my heart and my spirit, they do not stay open on their own. They've got plenty of information already, thank you, plenty of wisdom and certainty, all the answers that I need. My mind, spirit, heart, they're lazy. They run on automatic, and sometimes they're more than a little wary. Mind, spirit, heart, they're guarded, girded against the unfamiliar, the unexpected. I don't always really want to learn new things, actually, inconvenient truths, once I'm set in my ways. So I have to pry them open, prop them open with quiet, systematic passion every day. Let in the light and the fresh air and fresh hope come rushing in. Let in stark reality that I'd rather not see and bright promise, which maybe I've just convinced myself is not feasible. And comets of new understanding, the bright lights of other people's wisdom and the clear, undeniable, shattering radiance of other people's sorrows. I have to prop open my heart to get out of myself, to hear it. Other people's stories, experience, opinions. My mind closes all the time when I'm not looking, like a computer screen that's set to fall asleep every three minutes. My heart and spirit slam shut when I'm tired or afraid or distracted or discouraged. How do we keep ourselves awake? Sometimes I think we misconstrue awakening as a one-time experience, like waking up in the morning, you do it once after sleeping, and then you're pretty good to go for the day. But awakening spiritually, intellectually, morally, it's not like that. Sometimes we think of a religious conversion that is something that happens in an instant. You went along believing one thing, and now all of a sudden you believe something else, and you'll never look back. I have never heard a Unitarian Universalist say that in a new member class. I was just driving up Bell Avenue here, and suddenly I had to make a turn into your church. It was like that. It's never like that. We think of a spiritual awakening as a one-shot upgrade 
where with a little practice or by grace, enlightenment strikes like a lightning flash and you're good to go. We speak of the enlightenment like this. That period in Western philosophical history in the 18th century when we've been taught that reason and democracy and science eclipsed superstition and tyranny and dogma once and for all. But eclipses don't last very long, as Mariah Mitchell observed, 117 seconds. And religious conversion is the work of a lifetime, right? We hope, not just a trade-up from one orthodoxy to another, and then you stay there. We're always waking up spiritually, emotionally, blinking our eyes, shaking off the blankets of denial and delusion how many times in a day. And then think about this. When I think about what the UUA is doing, the Article II revisions, which sounds so bureaucratic and boring and whatever, but it's not, what they're doing is changing the bylaws of the UUA. Again, boring. But Article II is, as you heard in the forum last week with Linda Lemons, Article II is where the statement of principles and purposes reside. But they haven't always. That didn't come down from Mount Sinai. It's from the 1980s. Committees decided that. And we love them, the principles and purposes. But they are not our creed. Why? Because we're not a creedal religion. You can hold them in your heart forever. But Article 2 is in the process of evolving and changing to talk about covenant and the way we travel together not the way we think about it in our heads. You'll never lose the principles and purposes, but we're expanding to think about how are we in relation to one another, to the holy, to other people, to the earth, to all things. It's hard. It's tender. You think of Mariah up on the roof of her house, not just once, but on every clear night from the age of seven or eight, her parents built her a big ladder to let her do it until she retired from the observatory, which still bears her name at Vassar. And on the cloudy nights, the stormy nights, the nights when hurricanes rocked Nantucket to its foundation, she sat up late with a whale oil lamp running the numbers refining the celestial calculations based on all these years of rigorous watching, teaching her mind to sing all the beautiful music of mathematics, describing the colors, the breathtaking beauty of the stars in plain spoken articles. She labored over it again and again, making it as lucid and easy to understand so anybody could read it. This work, this awakening, was as constant and continuous for her as breathing in and out. The breeze at dawn has secrets to tell you. Don't go back to sleep. This comes from Jalal al-Din Muhammad Rumi, Muslim poet and philosopher born in Afghanistan maybe a hundred years before Hafiz, from whom Kent read. He said, you must ask for what you really want. Don't go back to sleep. The door is round and open. The door to enlightenment, knowledge, wisdom, light, hope, inner peace, truth. The door is round and open. Don't go back to sleep. Mariah Mitchell didn't. After she found the comet in 1847, people came to Nantucket to look through her lens by her side. Emerson, Henry Thoreau, Elizabeth Peabody, Frederick Douglass. 
people from across from the continent. And as her universe of deepening friendships expanded, so did her engagement, much to her surprise, in social justice, particularly in the movements to abolish slavery and grant citizenship, full citizenship to women. She observed that just as human understanding of our cosmos has shifted over time and is always shifting, so did her own understanding of human bodies in our orbits with each other shift. And she wrote about it in her journal. Were white people, male people, wealthy people, people of privilege and power like herself at the center of all things by virtue of natural law or God's law? Or might it yet be proven that like the planet itself, the sun does not revolve around them and everything could change. It was a disquieting question for her. Mariah was compassionate and humble, and she made all these observations with quiet, systematic passion, propping open the windows of her mind to see what light can do. To see what light can do. Her parents and her nine siblings were Quakers, and they established a liberal theological firmament under her feet. But as a young adult, Mariah quit the Friends Meeting, attending Unitarian services instead. She was a genuine scientist whose love of mystery and truth and the dance of mystery and truth awakened a mystical spirituality. Traveling in Italy, she wrote about Galileo. I know of no sadder picture in the history of science, she said, than that old man worn by a long life of scientific research, weak and feeble, trembling before that tribunal whose frown was torture and declaring that to be false, which he knew was true. And I know of no picture in the history of religion, she said, more weakly pitiable than that of the Holy Church trembling before Galileo and denouncing him because he found in the book of nature truths not stated in their book of God, forgetting that the book of nature is the book of God, it seems to be difficult for anyone to take in that idea and this idea that true, two truths will never conflict. For her, the book of nature was holy scripture and the book of God, a holy metaphor. Songs of praises and poems and prayers awestruck with creation and they could coexist. Hafiz, in the reading that Kent gave you, says God pours light into every cup. And he was writing far from Nantucket, far from Iowa, in Persia in the 1300s. Hafiz, like Rumi, was a Muslim, and so he wrote about God. But you might not. You might say, mystery or nature, this shining cosmos pours light into every cup, quenching darkness. The proudly pious, he said, stuff their cups with parchment and critique the taste of the ink, while God, cosmos, mystery, pours light, the cosmos pours light, and the trees lift up their limbs without worry of redemption, every blossom a chalice. Hafiz, he said to himself, seduce those withered souls with words that wet their parched lips as light pours like rain into every empty cup on the infinite ocean. What lets the light in? How do you become yourself a living cup. What keeps us wide awake, props us open, like an astronomer or a poet or a child? I live side by side with a little 18-month-old person who every day now 
sits in the same high chair, same scrambled eggs, and over and over drops them on the floor. Why? Because he's testing the laws of gravity. He's a scientist, and he's not yet convinced, but he will be, I hope, at some point, that the eggs were not going to fly back up. He looks down there, and he's like, what? Again? Fascinating, and makes a note, just like Mariah Mitchell. And we say, stop that. And he says, be gone. I am testing the laws of truth. I am a living cup filling with light. The cups go down too. What keeps us open when we're scared to new hope? What keeps us present when we're weary to reality, harsh as it is, so that we don't just bury our heads? What keeps the windows of the soul propped open just enough for the light of kindness to get in? propped open enough for the need for our kindness will call us out. So kindness into us and out again. What keeps us alert to disquieting questions and curious and supple and unguarded, even when we think we know everything? The Unitarians Mariah Mitchell heard on Sundays, they were shaking the old established order of congregational Protestant churches. They weren't just propping the windows up with paper towels. They were punching out the panes of glass. They were letting in all kinds of wild wind and heresy blowing around. Better translations, biblical scholarship, new evidence, archaeology, not to mention natural selection, very scary. It was all infusing the dusty corners of fundamentalist doctrine with this scorching light. Exposure for the first time in America to the sacred Eastern texts awakened all these questions about Christology and God, what religion is going to mean going forward in a pluralistic world. Science and reason joined scripture and tradition as reliable sources of our faith. And this was the flowering of Unitarianism as we experience it now. It was unprecedented, courageous, elegant, weird, to suggest essentially that the periodic table of the elements might be as holy scripture as the Christian Bible, that the fossil record might be a sacred text, each layer revealing all these glimmers of divinity and our place in it. Mitchell said two truths can never conflict if they're true. They have to coexist. She spoke of the book of nature, meaning science, the book of God, meaning mystery, and what the soul knows and the spirit asks and the heart requires without any evidence at all, no need for proof. It wasn't superstition. It was openness to new light. In the decades, the century that came next, Unitarians leaned really hard toward fact and reason, empiricism, this heady humanist intellectualism, a kind of haughty atheism sometimes focused on individual freedom more than collective liberation and beloved community. They leaned hard toward one side only. Emerson, descended from this long, infinite line of Unitarian clergy, called it corpse cold, and he left his pulpit and the church entirely. Henry Thoreau, who, like Mariah Mitchell, spent his hours and days and weeks observing the natural world, recording everything in detail in his great wild laboratory, Walden Pond, he trembled. And he said, wrote, writing in his journal, with all your science, can you tell me how it is and whence it is that light gets into your soul? Denise Levertov 
tells what happens when when we rely on facts and figures only. The tree of knowledge was the tree of reason. That's why the taste of it drove us from Eden. That fruit was meant to be dried and milled to a fine powder for use a pinch at a time. It's a condiment. But we stuffed our mouths full of it, and it is toxic in large quantities. Fumes swirled in our heads and around us and made a dense cloud that hardened to steel, a wall between us and the sacred. Reason locked us into its own limits, a polished cell reflecting our own faces. God lives on the other side of that mirror, she said. And you might say wonder, you might say solace, you might say mystery, the ineffable, magic, or grace. Through the slit where the barrier doesn't quite touch the ground, she says, the light manages still to squeeze in. Splinters of fire, the strain of music heard and lost and heard again. The stars, like every natural thing, are made of fire and ice. Their distances from here are immeasurable, their age and size and density. The starlight is a decipherable mathematical signature. But mystics everywhere, some priests, some pagans, some philosophers, some of them astronomers and physicists, they've always said that what's holy in us, what's fiery as long as we're living, is the inner light, primordial light, what Quakers call the light of God, and others call the force of life. It's what rushes into the room when a baby is born. If you've been there, you know what that is. And it's what quietly recede when someone dies. And if you've been there, you know that. Whether the windows are open or not, light comes in and out. That's the light we're shining while we're alive. That's the light you'll be talking about down at the Capitol this afternoon. To stay awake, attuned, fully present to the light that's shining within us and around us. That is our calling. The breeze at dawn, says Rumi, has secrets to tell you. Don't go back to sleep. You have to ask for what you really want. People are going back and forth across the door sill where the two worlds touch. That door is round and open. Don't go back to sleep.